Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Experiments Web Clinic Audio Replay Podcast. Marketing Experiments is an internet marketing research laboratory. The web clinic you are about to hear was broadcast live to an international audience of marketing professionals. Sign up to be invited to future web clinics, as well as gain access to all of our online marketing research at marketingexperiments.com. Good afternoon and welcome to another Marketing Experiments Web Clinic. The topic today is, can I test more than one variable at a time? Now this is just one question we're going to be looking at today. We, we have kind of a different setup in the studio today. Instead of just having one person in here kind of speaking to you, I've, we've invited a few guests into the studio today to actually, we're going to have a bit of a roundtable discussion around some of the most common testing related questions that we get on these webinars. So we get lots of questions from our audience related to how to run tests, what are the best tools to use, things like that. And what we're going to do today is we're going to try to cover as many of those questions in this kind of round table discussion setting. So hopefully you'll find that uh, kind of unique. But uh, before we get started, I have a few housekeeping things for you. If you can hear my voice, uh, then you've logged into the call properly. You should also be able to see a slide on the screen right now that's got a big bird on it. Uh, this is basically our Twitter handle for the, or this is our hashtag for the web clinic. Uh, if you want to interact with us, this is one way you can interact with us. Uh, we are monitoring Twitter right now. I can see the stream coming through as people are logging in and commenting. Um, you can also use your question and answer feature provided by GoToWebinar. Uh, if for some reason you have any technical difficulties or you have uh, questions related to the content, we have a whole team standing by to help you on GoToWebinar. Uh, so use that, take advantage of it. Also, we're going to be taking live questions during the entire presentation today. So if as we're talking more questions rise, you have, you have uh, you know, clarifying questions, feel free to send them our way. We're going to try to, like I said, get to as many as possible. So we're going to be looking at some of the greatest challenges that, and questions that marketers have around testing today. And if you look at this benchmarks data here, one of the greatest uh, questions, one of the greatest challenges is testing. It's very difficult. There's lots of questions. Sometimes marketers feel intimidated by testing. Uh, there's probably likely marketers on this call right now who have never run a test. And, and they have many questions. Usually when you start off, you have lots and lots of questions. We want to help, we want to help you today. Some people on the call maybe have been running testing, uh, tests for years. And you may have some more complicated questions. We're going to go there today as well. But there are a lot of questions around testing, and uh, uh, we're going to try to answer those for you today. At Mech Labs, we've run a lot of tests. Okay, if you're familiar with our web clinics, we're constantly, I mean, our web clinics are all about the most recent tests that we've had come through our labs. And so we're going to kind of step away from that normal format today where we bring you a discovery and we're just going to be looking at, uh, basically, based on our experience, based on the tests we've run, uh, what have we learned from that? What are some of the maybe shortcuts? What are some of the tricks that we've learned in testing uh, across 15,000 landing pages, across e a, a billion emails. I mean, we, we, we do it day in and day out. The guys at the table that I have right here, they're, they're running tests all day. They're reviewing tests all day. So who I have here on my far right is Mr. Uh, Bob Kemper. And Bob Kemper is the senior director of our sciences group. Uh, Bob Kemper basically oversees uh, really all of our testing and statistical analysis of our testing and the, the basically uh, overviewing the data, making sure things are valid. He's probably uh, the most seasoned person we have here at the table in terms of being able to answer your questions around validity, uh, statistics, etc. 
To his right is Benjamin Phillip, and he's a manager of our data sciences. And he, he's, Ben has got more of kind of the ground level approach. He's in day in, day out, actually helping with the running of tests, reviewing data, putting together uh, validity checks, and all those kind of things. So he'll be hopefully providing some pretty uh, ground level practical advice for you. So, uh, you know, just feel free to send all ranges of questions at us today. To my left is uh, Paul Cheney. Uh, we call him Cheney around here at the office, so you have my permission on the line right now to actually refer to him as Cheney. Uh, <laughs> here's the deal. Paul has this unique vantage point. He works with me on the content, and he's reviewing tests as they come through the lab, and he's interpreting tests as they come through the lab day in and day out. And so he's probably seen uh, probably most of the tests that have come through the lab. He's analyzed them. He's looked at them. He's reviewed them. He's familiar with them. We'll be talking about variables and different values you can test. He's got a lot of insight there. So um, this is our panel we put together today. And uh, like I said, we're going to be covering some of the most difficult questions, uh, well, difficult and common questions we receive. Some of them will be easier than others. Uh, some of them will be deeper than others. Uh, so like I said, some of you on the line are, are experts and some of you are, this is, this is brand new to you. So we're going to try to hit it all in one 35-minute session. So I've done my introductions. You guys ready? We're ready to find out. Okay. All right. So we're going to hit the first question. Right. We're going to go straight into questions. We're gonna, like I said, we're going to try to get to as many as possible. All right. Here's the first question. This comes to us all the time. Let me ask you this. I want to point this your way, Ben, Okay. Question one, can I test more than one variable at a time? Oftentimes on these clinics, we're showing tests before and after pictures where we're testing not just a headline, not just a call to action, but we're testing multiple things. Like on the screen that you can see right now, we ran this test, we got before and after result of 58%, or this test, 262%. So there's lots of tests that we're constantly showing, and one of the questions we get from the audience is, how can you run tests like that? Can you actually get learnings from tests where you're not well, you're testing more than one variable, or am I limited to testing one, one variable at a time? Well, Austin and uh, the listeners know the good news is you're not just limited to one variable at a time. Uh, it depends on several different factors what you're going to run in a test. Before you begin a test, you should start looking at your business objectives. Your website's leaking revenue right now. So to run a campaign where you're going to do six months of testing, testing single variables, might not be the best initial strategy. You might want to go with a radical redesign, change a lot of different elements on the test at the same time. At this point, the pages would be the variables. You're comparing one page to the other page to see if it's better. Perfectly legal to do. Another key aspect of whether you're going to test one variable at a time or not is you're the tester. You get to pick the variable. You get to define what your variable interest is going to be. As long as it matches your research question, then you can test it. If my research question is which page, then I can test a page. If it's which headline, then I can only test the headline. That then becomes my variable. So you're saying the variable can adjust based on the parameters that the researcher sets? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, another key point to this is going from big to small. So like I said, you're going to go to that radical redesign first. You're going to change a bunch of different elements. You know that your page B has won, let's say. The problem is you don't know which what part caused it, right? You changed a bunch of different things. You know that the page is better, but what caused it? Was it your headline? Was it your body copy change? Was it your call to action, per se? Once you've tested, you have your optimized page, then you can go and try to isolate which variables are causing. So you work your way from broad changes, broad variables, to 
single individual variables to you get to the end and what you have is testing headline versus headline or font versus font. You can get almost as nitpicky or as broad because you define the question. Excellent. Excellent. So is, is there a reason why you don't start off on the other end in terms of starting with single variable test? Why would you start off with an, a, a radical, you know, variable cluster radical redesign test? I think you have the option to get the most knowledge from that. You know that certain elements have changed, and then you can refine your knowledge and then figure out what exactly was that caused the change. So if you don't know where to start, start big and work your way to small. Okay. Can I just add, add one thing? You really don't, in most cases, need to know what kind of font. Um, from what I've seen uh, as far as tests that have come through, small changes like font size or font color uh, in a headline usually aren't going to make that big of a difference. So um, test, you know, groups of variables or variable clusters until they don't make a difference uh, to your bottom line or to your business objectives. Right. There, often there's going to be another variable that you need to isolate before you get down that far to font size. And um, uh, when you're testing, you generally begin with a, um, a diagnosis, something you feel is suboptimal about the page. Uh, or, or the email or whatever element uh, of the funding you're testing. And, uh, and from your diagnosis, you create a hypothesis, and, um, and then you design your test to test the hypothesis. And if, um, if you believe there is too much friction, um, there is anxiety caused by something, um, font sizes may contribute to one or more of those, but um, what we discovered and what we teach in, in the testing certification course is that you should <clears throat> begin with the largest variable cluster, largest um, set of elements, largest variable cluster um, that your research question will permit. Um, that gives you the opportunity to gr get a great lift. We're, we're looking for lifts and what we refer to as learnings or discoveries. So, so if your research question is something like, Will a will reducing anxiety on a page increase conversion? Something along those lines. You're saying that basically you can have multiple variables under, or you can classify that as one variable, or have multiple variables under the category or under the research question. Will a less anxiety reducing page produce conver you know increase conversion? That's that's a great point, um, and <clears throat> and speaks to something that that we've talked about internally uh, very recently, um, how do you distinguish what uh, the difference between a variable and a variable cluster? Um, you know, if you say the headline is, um, is a variable, well, yes, I mean, it's, it's pretty specific, um, but are there multiple things that you could change about a headline? Yes, you could change the headline copy. You can change the font size, font color, uh, the shape, the um, you know, motion, there are lots of things about a headline mm -hmm. um, that you could change and consequently it could be referred to as either a variable or a variable cluster. And how you decide which it is, is um, the designer, the person who designs the test, uh, establishes based upon the objective uh, whether the headline is a variable or a variable cluster. Excellent, excellent. So part of what I, this is Austin speaking, and part, part of what I want to do here is, is take the discussion and try to summarize it with some layman terms. These guys are very you know, smart guys, and 
I'm not as much. So I want to try to bridge that gap. And, 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 and so here's what I took away from it. You guys correct me if I'm wrong, okay? Um, so what I need to understand is that we should design our tests so that they are useful, okay? Uh, it's not necessarily useful to test the font. Uh, it may be, but not so you should be striving to answer a, a useful question, test a, you know, create a useful design that's going to give you results, answer key questions related to your customer. Um, a variable can be anything that the designer defines. Really, ultimately, it comes down to the designer. So really, there's debate about what is a variable in and of itself. Um, so there's some flexibility there. And uh, you know, thirdly, you should probably start with radical variable clusters. This is what I get from you, Ben. You're, you're moving from kind of radical variable clusters to more of a single, as narrow as you can to try to really discern what maybe made the changes in those radical versions. Yeah, you're, you're moving towards more specific knowledge about one element. Good. And, th and that helps you to move from which in your research question to why. You know, um, uh, there may be, you may change a number of things about elements on, the pa on a page or um, um, an, uh, an email that you believe may be contributing to anxiety. You, your hypothesis is uh, the difficulty is, is one of anxiety, and you see three or four different sources of anxiety. You might change them all at once in a variable cluster to test your hypothesis that there is, in fact, that anxiety is a factor. Then you may want to know why. Which of these things, or why do they have anxiety? Is it the wording of this, um, of this warranty thing, or how this is asked, or... Uh, is it is it something else? And you would drill down that. Drill what was down. a variable? Uh, Excellent. What was a variable defines the variable for that test will become um, a variable cluster when you move down to the next level to ask why uh, is there anxiety um, introduced here? All right, good guys, this is good. Let's move on to the next question. Okay. Question number two, and I'm going to point this your way, Bob. What is a, so we hear a lot about multivariate testing. So what is it, and is it valuable? When, do you sh when should you use it? That's the question. We get that asked a lot. Multivariate testing. Um, multivariate testing is, um, is a um, category or a, a family of, um, of um, experimental research uh, methodologies that, uh, that's intended to allow you to test um, the impact of more than one independent variable at a time. I mean, when, you know, when we're in science class in, um, in uh, grade school or middle school, um, we are introduced to um, the concept of uh, experimental methods with single factor testing. And we're admonished and we're, we're, we're told only change one thing, you know, and everything else has to, has to stay the same. Um, and with single factor testing, that is a, is a, um, a primary principle. You change one thing, everything else has to stay the same, and you measure the impact of the change in that one thing. Um, what um, multivariate testing is, is um, a, um, a method for, um, that uh, uses large sample sizes and mathematical techniques to allow us to simultaneously uh, change multiple independent variables and measure uh, the impact of them independently. So um, we, uh, we might change a, a headline and a, um, and a marquee uh, banner and an image and, and multiple things uh, at once. And that would be, um, you know, with a single factor testing, 
um, um, that would be unwise. That you know would be a, a large variable cluster. Um, but with multivariate testing uh, techniques, if we had three different headlines and uh, four different images, and you know that uh, that we were using multivariate te uh, techniques and tools, allow us to um, to combine what would have to be separate uh, A/B tests into into one and gain insights. So when so when would someone choose to, or when would it be valuable for someone to use a multivariate test? When, when, is, when is that valuable versus an A-B split test? I mean, it sounds to me like you're saying that an A-B split test, multivariate, multivariate test is kind of a almost multiplied A-B split test, like a tool, an automatic way to multiply, run multiple A-B split tests at once really quickly. Yes. Um, but let me ask you this. When is that even applicable? When do you need to do that? Why not just run an A-B test? Well, the, uh, the factors um, that, um, that determine what's most appropriate uh, in a given circumstance or for, um, for a given uh, company would be um, um, multivariate tests um, require larger sample sizes, typically, for a given test. Now, um, you can argue that uh, the number of uh, samples, the number of arrivals per insight, if you're testing multiple insights at once, um, you can use multivariate techniques to reduce the number of, um, of arrivals per insight when you're doing multiple ones, but the typical multivariate test is going to be of longer duration by the very nature of the fact that you are testing a lot of different treatments. It requires um, a greater sample so size, you need a bigger, more traffic. Right. Okay. Um, you know, uh, bigger sample size, um, more sophisticated tools. Uh, there are you know, many uh, single-factor A-B testing uh, tools out there. Uh, there are fewer uh, that are capable of, uh, of doing multivariate uh, techniques. Um, and it requires some additional uh, sophistication in testing. Um, you know, you need some more skills in order to in interpret a multivariate test. Um, and, and to design. The, the design of a multivariate test is, uh, is different in some ways from, from a single-factor test. And it's, it's, more, it's more complicated. Would you say this is more an, an advanced-level testing? Would you yeah, would recommend yeah, someone starting, when they're starting out, to start with AB and then move to multivariate? Or? Well, there are more sources of validity um, uh, risk. Okay. Um, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about validity, I know, uh, a little bit later on. But, um, you know, for instance, uh, one additional one that's introduced and is unique to multivariate testing um, is that of, um, of hidden variable interaction. So when, when you're testing multi, multiple variables at once, if you were to test all the headlines that you're testing, and then once you're done with that, pick whichever one performed the best, and that's your new control, and now uh, test all of the um, um, all the different images, then uh, what might be hidden to you is interaction among the variables where the uh, the highest performing headline and the highest performing image, when they're combined, um, might not. There might be a different one. There might be a different combination that just aren't so innately um, well matched, congruent with one another, that um, that the top performing one of either of these two, when combined, a different set is actually would have performed better, and multivariate testing gives you the opportunity to, uh, to study um, interactions among uh, variables, but it also comes with the responsibility 
to understand that um, that there are only certain kinds of multivariate tests. Um, you know, we'll, uh, we may get to fractional factorial uh, methods, and 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 some of those presume um, independence. And if you don't know that, then then you're then there's a risk that, that's not not present with A/B testing. Excellent, excellent. Let me let me see if I can summarize what what I heard here. Okay, so first off, multivariate testing is is really kind of a and this is definitely layman's term, but it's a simple way basically to to test uh, multiple A/B tests at once. It's really to, to really get accomplished a lot more with with a shorter period of time, quicker. Um, in terms of whenever you're wanting to consider using it, when should someone use it? We're talking about when you have a large traffic amount. We're talking about when you when you have the capability to interpret complicated complicated results. It's more complicated, so you have to have a a certain degree of expertise in that. Um, and also when you have time to run a longer test. That's what. Excellent, excellent. Um, this is good. I'm going to move on to the next question. Actually, uh, it's funny. A question came in from Brandon, and, and Brandon, you asked, you know, is 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 there a way to? It says, can you address how low traffic sites may need to change your testing strategy? Um, so we're going to talk just about that. Like, how how does? Here's question three, and Paul, I'm going to throw this your way. Um, how how does a website that has low traffic run tests? Sure, sure. So um, I've seen a lot of tests on low traffic sites. Um, essentially, there's going to be a trade-off if you have low traffic in either time, uh, budget, or in certainty of your test results. So one of those is probably going to have to get sacrificed a little more so that you can have two of the others. Um, in general, there are some creative ways to get around it. Um, the first way would be to kind of test in your channel so that you have more samples to work with. And then, so when you say channel, just explain to the audience what you mean by channel. So a, cha a channel would be, for instance, you could, if you're driving PPC traffic, um, you're going to have more samples in the search engine of impressions to clicks than you would, say, from landing page hits to click through on the landing page. So you have more samples there in the, in the PPC channel, in the email channel, in, um, you know, even direct mail, as long as the channel is representative of your ideal customer, uh, you can usually get a pretty good, make pretty good discoveries and, and inferences based on that and then kind of export those discoveries into your the rest of your site. Um, another way is to make your treatment designs more radical. So if there's a bigger difference in your treatments, um, you're going to have you're going to validate quickly on the lower sample size. Um, so, me, so if the if the treatments are more different, you're more likely to validate sooner. Is that? Well, if you made them different in the right way, then okay. yeah, yeah, you are more likely to validate sooner. Um, and this takes us back to the one variable yeah. where, you know, yeah, you can change all these things, but you're going to lose clarity on what's causing the change, and then that's the trade-off. So. Uh, and then, kind of the final way would be to set your statistical level of confidence lower. Um, so by and large, our kind of standard for general testing uh, in the lab is 95% level of confidence. Um, and that means, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, I think that means you're right 19 out of 20 times. No? Incorrect? Uh, it's slightly off. Okay. <laughs> well, what is it? What is it? What it means is that if we took the same exact experiment 
and we ran it a hundred times, we would expect to be right 95 out of those hundred times. Okay. And we accept a 5% error as random chance that we could potentially not get the same result five out of those hundred times. Okay, so you guys can definitely probably talk to this better than I can. I'm not good with the numbers, but um, as far as I know, it, there's a level of confidence that you can have that your test results are, are statistically significant, uh, that one treatment is different than the other treatment. Um, and you can kind of set that bar a little lower uh, than kind of the maybe industry standard just so you can, but again, that's a trade-off in certainty. So. Well, that's, yeah, that's the difference between an academic setting and a business setting. Um, in academia, um, there, are, that are, there are standards for publication and, you know, that um, everyone has agreed to. In reality, what is the big difference between a 90% and a 95%? I mean, does it make a big difference in the business setting? I think it's, you can think of it almost like, what are you willing to bet on, yeah. right? Are you willing to take the chance that 10 times out of 100 you were actually wrong? Are you willing to take five at a time? I've seen people that refuse to run anything less than 99%. I've seen people who are willing to take 80%, 85%. Yeah. So it's, it's really up to you and how you define your success and what you're willing to do. Well, and that's what we're paid for. Uh, you know, uh, we as, as professionals, certainly as uh, managers and decision makers, we're paid to make decisions in the presence of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. and, um, and if we're faced with um, spending more, uh, taking two more weeks to let the test run, uh, um, um, or taking the level of certainty that, that we have today and, uh, and saying, well, that's, uh, I'm willing to go with that. Um, that's a matter of discretion. Um, that, again, academia, you don't have the option. If you want to be published and believed, then, then this is what you need to do. Um, the, uh, um, in business, uh, we that's what we do and here's and I think it comes back to this like so the question is you know how do you test within low traffic and so you may be able to run a test where you can only get 90% statistical confidence and that's a potentially a trade-off that you have to face as a business and so let me see if I can summarize this point the answer is you know to what Paul is saying is either way testing with low traffic is likely going to face some sort you're going to face some sort of trade-off uh, you're going to trade off between the time it takes the budget or the certainty and so you may have to drop that level of confidence down. You may have to create more radical designs and kind of lose potentially, uh, you know, the information you get about the customers. You may have to sacrifice that a little bit. Um, but there's some ways also, creative ways you can overcome it. You can test in the channel. You can, like we said, lower your desired confidence level or you can design radical treatments. So um, that's what I got from this. Uh, you guys ready for the next question? All right, here we go. Ooh, we get this one a lot. So uh, let me ask this one to Ben. Ben, how do you determine what to test? All right, you've, you, there's probably millions of combinations, millions of different things you can test on a web page. How do you determine what to test? Well, my, my background's in statistics, so of course I'm going to go and say that it's all about the data, right? Um, you've got to look at your data. You've got to see what's happening. But in, in reality, there's other factors that come into play. And uh, I've created a couple of graphics uh, for this talk only, specifically for you guys out there. Um, these have never been seen by anyone before. <laughs> uh, it's kind of an inside joke. We, we use these in-house in all the time. They actually you help inform our decisions. But there's an order to the madness kind of, ready? So we want to optimize the product offer first. We want to make sure that what we're offering the customer is not only what they need and what they want, but also that we're being exclusive in some way about our product offer. You want to then look at the presentation 
and then eventually the channel. So you're kind of working from the specific product and you're moving through. So you can kind of tell your deficiencies by looking at your data and figure out which one of these three things needs to be optimized first for your personal website. The second thing is you need to have a philosophy of how you're going to change things. Once you find where to test, how are you going to change those? We at Mechalabs obviously have a conversion heuristic. We use it every day and it helps define what we're going to change and how we're going to affect things. So once we find that deficiency in the data, then we can say, what is it about this page that's actually causing it? Is it the friction? Is it the clarity of our value proposition? Is that what's causing the deficiency? So you have a philosophy and then you can affect the change and decide what to change based on that philosophy. We have a case study here that we're going to go over and this is a website that sells retail and wholesale goods. Um, I think they're actually collectibles. We, uh, we started with the partnership. We needed to do a funnel metrics analysis to determine where it was that we needed to test. And we actually did that and we saw a 20% decrease in the uh, second step of the funnel, which I think we have right here. Yeah, 20% decrease at the, uh, one of the checkout pages in the funnel. So we found out where the decrease was happening, where the leakage was occurring. Then we realized, okay, what is causing that? So we had to actually look at the web page, which I think we have available. Here was the web page. So this is the original page. This is the original okay. page that they had, right? So we noticed that it's unclear why the credit card is required at this point. The purchase agreement terms caused confusion. They were hard to read, hard to understand. So we knew at that point we were dealing with the heuristic element of anxiety. Once we knew it was anxiety, we could take steps to relieve the anxiety. The second, here's the uh, eventual treatment. We added some third-party security indicators, which helped to relieve the anxiety, like I said. And we also gave them the satisfaction guarantee. Now they know they can trust us that their, their credit card information isn't just going to somebody who's going to misuse it, misrepresent it. Um, and this test actually got a lift. Uh, the control was a conversion rate of 82.3% and the treatment had 86.04. So it was already very high. One thing people don't realize is there's a limit to this, right? 100% click-through rate is as high as you can go. So when you're already at 82%, you're, you're pretty much limited. You can't get huge, huge lifts on top of that, right? Um, I could never get a 50% lift here. But we got a 4.51% relative lift. It, it was at our level of confidence. And so we declared our treatment, the winning treatment for this test. The thing to understand here is that it was a small lift, Austin, right? 4.51 doesn't, doesn't make a lot of headlines with 4.51. Right. But because of where, because we saw the leakage, because of what, using our philosophy, it actually was a revenue generator of about half a million dollars or so for this website over the next year. Excellent, excellent. So to summarize, knowing where to test requires knowing your data, kind of finding those leaks, finding the key strategic places. Generally, you can use the the OPR greater than OPRN greater than OC. They optimize the product first, presentation first, then the channels. It's kind of right. generally the process you want to go. In terms of what to test, when you discovered, okay, there's a leak here, or there's a problem here, what to test, you can use the conversion heuristic uh, that we teach on all the time. So, and that's basically what that's there to serve, is to help marketers understand from what I'm saying, what to test. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and we, you know, it's all weighted. You can, you, can, you can look at a page through that lens and actually discover what to test. Mm -hmm. I'm going to keep burning through because we are running low on time. I want to I get to 
another question because uh, actually I'd like to get the two more questions if possible because I see them coming in. This is a question that's related to Alan, your question about uh, how do you calculate the test significance to determine if there's a difference. Um, so that's basically question number five we have here. And this is a question we get asked a lot. And I'm going to send this, Bob, your way. Um, how do you know when a test is valid? Um, and, 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 and just so you know, just let's, if you can, give it as, as quick as you possible. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Go for you it. know my tendency. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I, uh, validity in, uh, in a testing concept, um, uh, um, perspective is a, uh, uh, it's a multi-dimensional thing. Um, a valid test uh, in, in broad terms is uh, one that is designed and conducted um, free of validity threats. Right. So, um, so what's a validity threat? Um, most people, when they ask that question, um, are talking about one type of validity threat. Um, and they're, they're talking about um, uh, sample distortion, what we refer to as sample distortion effect. Um, and that means... That's what did, Alan's talking about. Yes. Yeah. Did, did, I get enough, um, uh, did I get enough arrivals? Have I, have I got enough data um, that I have a, a valid test? And, and that's essential. You know, you need enough samples with a big enough difference and, and all the things that, uh, that go into um, the statistical uh, portion of having a valid uh, test. Uh, did I get a, a big enough game to, to get the level of confidence that I decided up front that I needed in order to make, uh, make a decision? Um, but I would say equally large and, and, and probably probably greater threats if only because of, um, of lack of awareness. Um, there are other threats that, that we have um, uh, discovered are even more dangerous. Um, um, one is, uh, is selection effect. And that is um, uh, when who gets which treatment is something other than random. Um, you know, in, um, and that's one form of selection or sampling bias. Sampling biases um, are, are a serious uh, validity threat, and particularly if you're unaware of them. You make decisions based on, uh, on data that is not representative. Um, another one is, um, is history effect. Um, history effect is the impact on an independent variable, something, you're, something you want to improve like conversion rate, um, that's caused by um, something having to do with the passage of time. Um, so if, um, if you are, um, for, for a case study that, that we've used in our um, online testing uh, course, we were testing in the channel, testing PPC ads, um, and um, it was for the National Alert Registry. Um, and it's uh, it's a registry of um, of uh, sexual offenders that you know across across the, the United States, and during the middle of our test, um, you know, it's a 14-day test, I believe, and and right in the middle of the test, there was um, there was a nationally televised program, um, and we're testing language, you know, is, is registered offender, uh, a child predator, and there were um, uh, there were a number of them, and that nationally televised uh, program, it was, uh, may have been Oprah or, you know, was, uh, used one of those terms almost exclusively. And 
of course, we saw a dramatic impact in, in tracing back. We saw a dramatic impact where, uh, where that term suddenly uh, yes. was uh, clicked on more and uh, a much higher search rate and, uh, and invalidated that test. Let me, um, this is good. There's a question that just came in um, from Alan again. Alan, thanks for sending your questions. These are really good questions you're asking. Uh, I'm going to throw this your way, okay? I'm going to start taking, in fact, audience members, I'm just going to say we're going to shift now. We'll give you the opportunity to ask them some questions. So if you have some questions that are kind of in your mind right now, uh, we're about to be done, but I want to give you an opportunity to ask your questions. From Alan, here's his question. He says this, um, how did you know that a 4.6% increase was not just some random fluctuation from the same population? How did you know that? Well, we have statistical methods that we use to calculate whether or not the randomness is what's causing the, the change, right? Um, something like the T-test, one of my favorite stories in statistics is there's a guy who in 1908 was working for the Guinness Brewing Company, right? And when he needed to make quality assurance samples, he couldn't obviously use four kegs worth of Guinness because you're cutting into your bottom line at that point. So he invented what we now use as the student's tea distribution. And we know it works because who's ever had a bad Guinness? So there's the connection right there between <laughs> beer and statistics, right? Is that how they... That's it, yeah. Before I do anything, I have a <laughs> sip of coffee. Um, no, but if, once you get into the statistics, you can start to learn all these distributions, and we compare what we got versus what the control got, and we actually see what is the probability that I get a number this much higher, in this case 4.6% higher relatively, what are the chances that I get that just by random chance? And we had less than 5% chance of that happening, so we accept that. And by the way, I think we're going to be tweeting out a um, sample size calculator um, and also a blog post by Dan Burstein um, that's going to help you to calculate that up front. Uh, so. so if you're monitoring this on Twitter, you may already have seen that link. It's coming through if it hasn't come through already. And that, that should hopefully even, I mean, if you're really wanting to get into this and, and start calculating validity, you can actually start playing with that tool and actually running your own tests and, and doing that. So um, excellent. So that's a, that's a good question. Here, here's another question from Cayman. Um, and I, I think we can take maybe two more questions. We're gonna, if you guys will allow us, we'll go a little bit over here and get to some of your questions. Um, here's question, here's a Cayman's question. How long do you wait before you stop a test? So when should you stop a test? Anybody? Yeah, I think actually that was the next question. Um, Excellent. You know, there's really there's two things that that really go into when to stop a test. It's do you have a sufficient sample and have you reached a level of confidence? Um, you can stop when either you know the sufficient sample reaches sufficient and you haven't reached a level of confidence. You can still stop a test then the chances that you continue to 95% level of confidence after sufficient sample has been reached or get progressively smaller. I like to use the example, if you had $1,000 and I gave you $10, then that $10 means something to you. But if you had 100000 and I gave you $10, then the $10 doesn't mean as much. So the bigger your sample size already is, the less impact each person at, will have at what point? At what point should you stop running the test? Maybe another way to say it. Like, at what point is it actually undermining your test results to keep it running? Well, that's, um, that's a great question. It has to do with, uh, with that history effect. Mm -hmm. The longer uh, a test runs, um, the more potential there is that something's going to happen that'll change the results. Now, um, now it's, it's innate that uh, you're presuming when you test that, uh, that 
um, the conditions during the test will be representative for some, some important length of time uh, and that the test is predictive of what you will see when the test is over. So you know, there, there's, a, there's an innate presumption there. But um, when you, uh, there are certain kinds of history-oriented, time-oriented things that happen um, predictably. And if your test runs too long, things like seasonality. You know, if you test across the beginning of the Christmas season, um, or you know, tax season if you do tax software, you know, if, if you're testing and you run such a long test that uh, things change, yes. things you know ahead of time uh, are predictably changing, what's, then what's you the, impact the What validity. would you say is the standard? Is there a standard length for test duration? Is there like a best practice for testing? The next, the next slide is a graph that shows kind of the, yeah, the simplified the version of... I don't know if that answers the most specific question you just asked yeah. now, but this is definitely a, a useful visual for those of you who want to know when to stop a test. Um, I believe your question was... Is, is, there, is there a standard, and I, I should, like, is there a set standard, uh, is it like, I mean, right. a week, is it a month, how it's, long do you... You know, it's so dependent on how many people come to your website. Okay. If you have a million people come to your website a day, you might be able to shut it off a lot quicker than like if you have... Seconds. Yeah, 500. Five <laughs> right, uh, five seconds, that's the, that's the minimum standard for testing. <laughs> um, but it depends on your seasonality, too. If you see high fluctuations on the weekends, you might want to give yourself two weeks so you can account for all those kinds yeah. of things. And that's and that's a that's a, brings up a great uh, you know, related question in exactly that is um, how how soon can I stop a, uh, a test? And um, and there are um, dangers in running a test if you are. Um, you know, if you're Google, or if you're Dell, or if you're, you know, if you've got an extraordinarily high, you know, um, two million hits a day, or um, then conceivably, statistically, here's a, here's where testing responsibility and seasoning comes in. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you could conceivably, after four minutes, all right, you know, I've, I've got it, I, I have enough yeah. traffic. Um, the question um, then is, did that four-minute period? Uh, completely represent the um, the the type of traffic, the motivation, the the, the uh, people who are going to see the site for the next year. And that's the sampling distortion effect you were talking about earlier. You want to make sure you get, like you said, exactly the representative sample of, of people. So guys, I am getting flagged. I've let us go over a little bit, and hopefully the audience, hope you guys found that valuable. I, I wanted to let these guys answer some of these questions. I, I saw some of the questions coming through. I wanted to get through to them, to you. Um, we are out of we are out of time. This is this has been this has been really good. I see a question right now from Victoria. That is one of the most common questions we get. I, um, she's asking what software. Okay, I'm just going to go ahead and do this, guys. And if you need to jump off the line, go ahead and jump off the line. But we get this question so often. I don't want to leave this conversation. I don't want to leave this table without addressing it. So um, here, here's the question: What software are you recommending to use for testing? Uh, and anyone can answer this. I, I think. Yep. I think we had got it prepared too, right? This was a question we were looking at doing. Uh, so um, right. So I'll, I'll go ahead and take it. So. Um, I've seen a lot of our tests um, come through the lab, and I've seen the various testing tools that we've used. Um, and even over the past two years um, that I've really, really been getting into these tests, uh, they've changed significantly. Um, a better question is then kind of what's the best 
software to use is, is what is the best software for my business, for my operation. Um, because even if there was the best software out there in general, uh, it may still not be the best software for you. So um, a couple things to consider. Really, you're just making a business decision. So you're going to just consider your budget. Uh, you're going to consider your in-house expertise. Um, if you don't have a lot of expertise and don't have a lot of budget, you're going to want an easy-to-use tool that maybe isn't uh, doesn't cost a lot or is free. Um, there's trade-offs all down the line. In general, the industrial strength um, testing tools are going to let you run a valid test in most cases. Um, and there's really not one over the other. There's just going to be some trade-offs that you're going to have to consider. And also, in our lab, I've seen us run simultaneous um, testing tools in the same test, just because maybe we wanted features from one, um, you know, the, the best of, we wanted the best of both worlds, so we can, you can actually stack testing tools sometimes. Um, you're increasing, you know, some threats there, but, and I've seen uh, that happen as well, so. And if a testing tool doesn't do the basic operations that we all need it to do, then it's not going to survive in this yep. world. People are going to, are going to go through it. Um, Bob Kemper is going to download it and try it out and know that it's not, not the best one to use. So you don't have to worry about getting the basics covered when you're doing this. It's, it's exactly like Paul said. It's, you know, what are you giving up and how much money do you have to spend and how, what's your expertise? Do you need a strong support system to answer all your questions or do you think you know how to do it? All those kind of things are what make a testing tool best for you. Yep. This is good. Well, guys, I'm going to wrap up the conversation here at this point. This has been good. Uh, I just want to let the audience know, this is, we're trying something new here. We wanted to get, give you access to some of the experts we have here in the lab. Let us know if you found it valuable. If you like this kind of format, if you'd like us to do this more often around different topics where you can actually submit questions and, uh, and have them basically addressed here in a conversational manner. Um, one thing I've been asked to tell you about, which I think is actually really relevant to the conversation, uh, is we just launched an online testing course. Uh, over the next week, you can actually, just for this audience, for this web clinic audience, you can get $100 off of that course. So if you want to go deeper into statistical validity, if you want to learn kind of how to track history effect, instrumentation effect, all the different validity threats, uh, you can take that course. Um, you'll get to see Bob Kemper, you know, teaching part of that course. So. Um, Anyway, that's, that's all we have for you today. Again, let us know what you thought of this clinic. I thank you guys for uh, being here, taking time out of your, uh, your day. I'm sure we're going to send you right back into the lab to start running some yeah, tests. Thanks for having us. So uh, uh, it's been a joy, and thank you for attending. If you liked what you heard today, please share it with a friend. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this recording of a Marketing Experiments Live Web Clinic. You can sign up to receive invites to future live web clinics, as well as receive access to $10 million worth of internet marketing research at marketingexperiments.com.